Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It's Matthew 5, verse 8. Allow me to read this passage. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, continue to give us wisdom, guidance, and understanding of your word. Help us to see, Lord, these foundational truths that we need in our own lives to, to, to serve you faithfully, to live as your children. May we be found faithful. And Lord, use these words to inspire us to, to see how we need to be more perfect and holy in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask a few questions. How are you doing with the foundational stones that we've covered so far? These foundational stones that we find in the Beatitude. I've shared with you that Beatitude is the first uh, part of the first sermon that's recorded that Jesus preached. Doesn't mean that it's the first sermon he ever preached, but it's the first recorded one. I believe that Jesus knew that it would be the first recorded uh, sermon in the Scriptures. I also believe that because he believed this and knew this, that he knew that the foundational introduction was key. And so what we see in these Beatitudes is really what I call the foundational stones of being a child of God. And so Jesus really didn't make it easy, did he? We see the word blessed and we know that it also can mean the word happy or joyful. And we look at the things he's telling us will bring us blessedness, happiness, joyfulness. We say, I don't see it. How does being poor in spirit, how does mourning and all these other things bring happiness or joy or being blessed? Well, we got to look at it in spiritual eyes instead of human eyes. We look so much in life with, through these eyes, these physical eyes and our human flesh and say, I want to be happy. I want to have joy in my life. And we try to put all these things in our lives to bring us joy and happiness. And nothing really satisfies until we turn that human joy into spiritual joy. And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Let me ask the questions. Have we come to that point where we consider ourselves poor in spirit, where we see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, having absolutely nothing of worth to offer to God that would earn us salvation, eternal life? Are we truly mourning over our sinfulness, realizing that it is our sin that separates us from God, and that until we come to that point of bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting what He did on Calvary's cross, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, we're not going to have a right relationship with the Lord. Once we get to that point of accepting salvation through Christ, have we begun to take on the attributes of Christ? The greatest ones that we see are His humility, His meekness, His gentleness. Are we showing that in our own lives as He, through His Spirit, now lives in and through us? Have we come to the realization that when we came to Christ in salvation, that we came as newborn babes and we need to grow spiritually and that we need to develop a hunger and a thirst for His righteousness and we 
satisfy that by the reading, study, meditating on His Word, by the time that we spend in prayer, uh, soaking in the presence of God, by surrendering anew to His Spirit working in and through us? Have we, again, taken on another attribute of Christ? Mercy. See, mercy was first shown to us because we did not deserve salvation. What we deserved was eternal separation, eternal punishment for our sins. But God had mercy on us and did not give us what we deserved, which is hell, eternal judgment. Instead, he gave us grace and gave us salvation, eternal life. Have we, who have received God's mercy, now begun to show mercy towards others? Well, if we're doing good on these foundational stones, these, these building blocks of being a child of God, then we should be experiencing spiritual happiness, blessedness, joy. If you're not, then you need to go back and start with the first beatitude again and work forward until you get there. Another thing that is kind of interesting, the first four beatitudes are kind of sort of repeated with the last four. We dealt with... Uh, being poor in spirit, and then after that, we find mercy. Well, if we are poor in spirit and deserve hell, eternal judgment, but God gives us mercy instead, those two correlate. Second one is mourning over sinfulness, and today is the counterpart of that. When we deal with sin, we become pure in heart. So these all kind of correlate with each other. So we're looking at being blessed are those who are pure in heart. Well, being pure in heart is, being, is seen through a lot of different lenses. A lot of different people have different perspectives on what does it mean to be pure in heart. A lot of our scripture is what we see in the Old Testament. And we primarily deal with the Jewish people. How did they find perfection? Well, they didn't very well. They, if you read through the scriptures, uh, the, the Israelite people were kind of on this roller coaster in their relationship with God. They would get up on cloud nine where they were really in obedience to God and feeling that they were receiving his blessings. And then they would start turning away from God and they would be punished. God would bring his judgment upon them. But the Jewish people basically saw purity as keeping the law. That was really the only uh, earmark that they had to say, am I pure? They would say, well, am I keeping God's laws? Well, you look at Le Leviticus, you look at uh, all the laws that were written there, you look at Deuteronomy, which is a retelling of the laws, and you see hundreds and hundreds of different rules and regulations that really God gave so that we would know how to live with each other and in a right relationship with him. What happened was that the Jewish people realized, can't keep them. I can try real hard, I can be real sincere, but I cannot fully keep the law. That's why God brought in the sacrificial system. Every year they would sacrifice a lamb, Blood was shed, and that blood was atonement for their sin. And throughout the year, they could offer other offerings for their sinfulness, for their praise that God was willing to forgive, that God provided. But they could never fully keep the commandments of God. 
Well, here comes along the Jewish religious leaders and said, well, we're going to show you how to keep the, the laws of God. We're going to show you all these little rules and regulations that if you keep them, then by default, you will keep the word of God, the commandments of God. Well, they just tacked on more thousands of things to do. And if the, if the, if the Israelite people could not keep the original commandments, they sure couldn't keep the additional rules and regulations. So they realize we can't do this. So they kind of came up with some formulations through the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees. They kind of came up with this idea. What can we do to find some, some semblance of purity in our lives? Well, here's what we do. Take a handful of the rules and try to keep them perfectly. If you can just do something right then we'll consider that as being perfection. Couldn't do that either. Okay, let's narrow it down a little bit further. Find one commandment and keep it holy, fully, and we'll consider you pure. Couldn't do that either. So how in the world, if we are unable to keep God's commandments, how in the world can we be considered pure? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, it all comes in the form of a man named Jesus. Let's look at what these, this simple verse says. First of all, it says, pure in heart. Before we get to the word pure, let's look at the word heart. The, the Greek word for heart is cardia, which is where we get the word cardiac from. If you've ever had any heart issues, you've gone to a cardiologist to see about your heart. Well, basically, Scripturally, the heart is seen as the representing the inner person, the emotions, the desires of our being, and the expression of our will. Now, in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, it says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. So it is here in this inner person that God desires purity. And then Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. David, the psalmist, gives us several different passages where he understands God's desire. In, De in uh, Psalm chapter 51, verse 6, as well as verse 10, this is where Nathan has, uh, Nathan has come to, to, to David point blank telling him that he has sinned against God in his uh, illicit relationship with Bathsheba. And here's what David says in verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Then verse 10 he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then going back to Psalm 19, 14, uh, David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Then in Psalm 26, 2, he says, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. So even in the Old Testament, David and many others understood what God's desire for them was, is for them to constantly be 
examining their own heart to make sure that it is in line with God. And, God, and David even says what we need to be praying, create in me a clean heart. Purify me. The problem is our heart not only is a source of purity, righteousness, but it also is a source of evil. Matthew understood this. In fact, in, fact, in chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, he says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. So how do we get this evil, sinful heart to be purified? Well, let's get to the word pure. What does it mean? How do we get that word? Well, the Greek word for pure is catharsis. Catharsis. You may kind of be hearing the word catharsis out of this. In a counseling viewpoint, catharsis is getting the angst, the, the problems out of you and just venting them out so that you feel better. It's basically dealing with the heart, the emotions, and even the mind, helping you to, those who are depressed, those who are angry, those who have all these bent up emotions, to find a way to release them. Catharsis is getting rid of these things that are bothering you. But looking at the scriptures, when we see this word catharsis, it is usually mainly used in the purification process of metals. It is purifying gold, purifying silver, purifying anything, usually by the, the heat, by melting it down, scraping off the dross, getting rid of the impurities so that what is left is pure. And so that's the picture of this word catharsis. And really what we see spiritually is it is the cleansing of the heart of anything that is impure. Here's what God wants. He wants us to have a single-mindedness, an undivided devotion towards Him, a spiritual integrity, and true righteousness. That's what God is expecting. That's what He wants. And so if we're to have a single-mindedness, we've got to overcome double-mindedness. Did you know there's quite a few verses about being double-minded? Let me just share a couple of those. Matthew 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship, or do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James also says a few verses later in verse 8 of chapter 4, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God knows that we struggle with this. The Bible is filled with references to our need to purify our heart. But what is purity? How do, we, how do we find it? Well, some people claim that purity is sincerity. If I truly have a right attitude about what I'm doing, if I am sincere about it, then that is righteousness. Well, let's see how this works. There's a bunch of prophets of Baal, and a man named Ezekiel challenges them. They're to build an altar, 
and whichever one of their gods can light the altar wins. Well, Elijah does the stupid stuff. He builds the altar and then pours water all over it and even builds a trench around it and pours water into it. And the prophets of Baal build their altar ready for just a simple spark to light it. And they start crying out to Baal. He doesn't hear them. So Elijah says, maybe you need to cry out a little louder. Maybe he'll hear you. Maybe he's asleep right now. And they do that. He still doesn't do anything. They start cutting themselves, trying to, out of sincerity, to get Baal to do their bidding. They were sincere, weren't they? Would you cut yourself if you were not sincere about what you believed? They were sincere, but they were wrong. They were not pure in heart. How about the Pharisees? You know, we, we, we don't give the Pharisees very good reputation, do we? Jesus didn't either. Most of the apostles didn't. But were they sincere? Did they really believe that by giving the little tidbits of rules and regulations might actually help people to fulfill the bigger law? If you're, it's, it's kind of like building the building blocks. If you need to get to here, then take these steps to get to there. Maybe they were sincere with their attitudes, but they were wrong. They were not pure in heart. So what is the standard of purity? What is the standard of purity? In the world it's this, gold. Standard of purity, pure gold. It's not biblically. Instead, the standard of purity is godly perfection. God's holiness. That is the only standard that there is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? God tells us that we are to be perfect just like God is perfect. I don't know about y'all, that I can't do it. So, our problem is that our heart is far from being perfect. Instead of comparing ourselves to God, who do we compare ourselves to? Each other. If I have sin in my life, I can pretty much guarantee you I can find somebody that has worse sin in their life than I do. And so I compare myself to them and say, you know, I'm doing pretty good. God ought to be pretty proud of me because look at me compared to this person. You know, Pharisee did that one day. He came into the temple and he stood and he lifted his voice up to heaven and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. How do you thank God like that? He didn't. When that sinner, that tax collector, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but said, Lord, forgive me, the sinner. Have mercy on me. He said only one of them left out righteous, and it wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. So I think we stand in pretty good situation. Quit looking at others to compare. Look to the Lord. We look and we see that his standard is to be pure and holy like himself. David again, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. He asks the question, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehoods and has not sworn deceitfully. So now it's the question, 
How do we move from the sinful heart to a pure heart? How do we become pure at heart? Well, you know, that's been debated and argued throughout the centuries. Here's the way some people do it. They try to live an ascetic lifestyle. They become monks. They move into monasteries. They totally isolate themselves from the entire rest of the world so they're not influenced by the things that we're influenced by, by the things of the world. They devote themselves to prayer and meditation. And they think that by being separated from the world, that they'll be insulated from the sinfulness of the world. The problem is, the sinfulness of the world is right inside of them. They took it with them. Even if they spend the majority of the day praying and meditating, they still have a sin nature that they have to deal with. And God never did say to separate yourself from the world. Uh, scriptures basically give us the idea that we need to be in the world, but not of the world. God always has commanded us to go ye therefore into the world and share my gospel, to make disciples. So how do we do that if we separate ourselves from the world? We can't. And then there are some that kind of take an opposite extreme. They basically think that the moment that you receive Christ, he cleanses you and takes away your sin nature. Well, you know, there are some scriptures that kind of make us think that. The old has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Well, yes, this old fleshly nature is passing away, and we are being reborn spiritually. But the final process has not yet taken place. That is called the end, where we leave this body and receive a perfected body to be with the Lord for eternity. We look and we see that separation doesn't do it. Just taking away the sin nature is not biblical. So we look again and we, we realize sin is a part of our life. When these people think that they could rid themselves of sin just through the act of salvation, we have to realize what the Bible says. Paul pretty much takes care of that in Romans chapter 7, verses 17 through 19. It's actually a lengthier passage than this. This is kind of the focal part. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, but the willing is present in me, sincerity. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now that's Paul, one of the strongest men of God we've ever had in recorded history. And he's saying, I can't do it. I still have this sinful fleshly body that keeps wanting me to do exactly what I don't desire to do. So... Instead, here's what we have to understand. God has commanded us to be pure, right? If God commands us to be pure, then God's going to provide a way for us to become pure. God will never ask us to do or command us to do anything that he won't give us the ability to do. So how do we become pure at heart? First, admit that you can't. Admit that you cannot become pure at heart. At least not in your own abilities. 
I have absolutely no ability in and of myself to become pure at heart. It's not physically, fleshly, humanly possible. I cannot do it. First thing to do is admit that you can't. You can't, but God can. So we first admit we're not capable of doing it. We have no power in and of ourselves. Second, we look to God. We seek His wisdom, His guidance on how to become pure. How do we do that? Well, we just look up to heaven and say, okay, that's how? No. God's given us the instructions. Read, study, meditate on His Word. He gives us the clues of how to become pure. And it is a dedicated, surrendered life unto Him. And that really brings us to the third part. We must surrender to the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit that dwells in us. God in us can give us pure hearts. I can't do it in my fleshly being, but God living in me through His Spirit can. But I, even He can't do it if I don't let Him. We have an amazing power. We can deny God who lives in us. That's called sin, by the way. We need to live totally surrendered lives to the Spirit of God living in us. He is the ability for us to live perfect, pure, holy lives. And the fourth is to draw near to God. The greatest way to do that is through prayer. Confessing our sinfulness so that He can forgive us of our sins and what's the other part? Cleanse us from unrighteousness to make us pure and holy in His presence. That is what prayer is all about. Seeking after God, confessing our sinfulness, then allowing Him to restore us, and then to have that wonderful, beautiful relationship with Him. So, we look at those ways that we can become pure. But there's another part that takes us back to our day of salvation. Actually, it takes us back some 2,000 years ago to something that took place at Calvary. It's called the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There, we use this word, and I don't fully understand it. It's called imputed. Do y'all use that word very often, imputed? I don't either. You have to kind of look it up and say, what does this really mean? It basically means <clears throat> to take something that you have and put it onto the account of someone else. Here's something you'd love for me to do is to take $100 out of my checking account and put it in your checking account. That's kind of the picture, is taking something that you have and putting it onto the account of someone else. <clears throat> but we're not talking about physical things right now, we're talking about spiritual things. Here <clears throat> are two things that took place on the cross of Calvary. The first one is that our sins were imputed onto Christ. Our sins were put onto Jesus' account and then the second thing is his righteousness was imputed into our account. For those who believe and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, his righteousness is imputed, putting, put onto our account. Y'all don't believe me, right? You really don't believe that happened. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That's our sin being imputed on to Christ. 
so that he might become the righteousness of God in him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin took on our sin. Our sin was imputed on Christ so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness was imputed, put onto our account. That's how purity is able to be a part of us. Not because we can earn it, not because we can say all the right magical words to get it, because of what took place on Calvary. So we look and we see that righteousness is a gift from God. Purity is a gift from God. Is it just for the New Testament saints? No. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. When Abraham believed God, it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, imputed, put it onto his count to him as righteousness. Belief, faith, is the key to this imputed righteousness. Paul shows us in the easiest way to look at it, in action form. Here's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I've got to crucify this flesh so that I can live in Christ, so that he can live in me, so that I no longer live according to this flesh, but I live according to him living in and through me. That's how we become pure at heart. That's the only way. You can, you can all have these do's and these don'ts, and you do all the do's and you don't do all the don'ts. That's not going to happen. You can't keep those laws. The Jews tried to do it for eternity, and they couldn't do it. They had to depend on God's grace through the sacrificial system to cleanse them from their unrighteousness. Jesus did that once and for all at Calvary. When we place our faith in him, he imputes his righteousness on us. He covers our sin. He makes us pure and holy in the sight of God. So what do we do now that we're a child of God? Well, we're now perfect. We can never sin again, right? No, we've already dealt with that. Paul pretty much wiped that one out of the part. Can't happen. We still sin. But thanks be to God, he still loves us. And he has a righteousness in store for us. We already have the righteousness of Christ on our account. But when we do sin, it still separates us from God. It keeps him from wanting to bless us and to give us these gifts that he desires. It separates us from even having a right relationship with God. That's why we still go back to 1 John 1, 9. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to, again, cleanse us of that unrighteousness. It's a continuous action way of being made pure. Well, what's the result? Blessed are those who are pure at heart, for they shall see God. The word shall is a future tense word, but there is a present tense part of it. We cannot see God like we will in the future. 
when we leave this earth and give a per perfected body and we enter into the very presence of God, we will see him as he is. We cannot do that right now. This fleshly body cannot stand to be in the very presence of God. You remember Moses wanting to see God? He had to hide him into the cleft of a rock. And all he saw was this train going by. Basically, he saw the evidence of his glory. He did not see God. We can't see God. Not yet, but we will someday. But present, we're seeing glimpses of God. We're seeing his holiness. We're seeing his love. We're seeing his peace, his power, his presence. All we have to do is look. And we see God working in us and through us in multitudes of ways. We sense the holiness of his presence and his spirit. We now see God. Not with eyes, but with our spirit. He is with us. The Bible tells us very clearly that he is in us. He dwells in us. What a, what a blessing. We now see God, and we shall see God. How are we doing? How pure is your heart right now? What stains need to be cleansed? If you are a true child of God, the cleansing is not that big of a deal. The action's already been taking place. It's what Jesus did on Calvary. The only thing that keeps the stain there is me and you. When we refuse to confess our sinfulness before God, that stain just keeps being there, keeps festering, keeps growing, and it keeps it probably enabling us to, to reject even more of what God wants in our life. But when we crucify ourselves with Christ, when we surrender ourselves anew to His Spirit living in through us, when we confess our sinfulness, God is so faithful. Forgiving, cleansing, purifying. And that's what God can and will do and wants to do. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come to you today, but we realize that there's no way we can consider ourselves pure in our own selves. Lord, we are, we're flesh and blood. We are sinful creatures. Lord, we cannot be pure in and of ourselves. Lord, we can follow a list of do's and don'ts that won't get us very far. Lord, help us to trust in you that you have provided the way for us to have a pure heart. Lord, it's what happened on Calvary some 2,000 years ago, where you took our sins from us, put them on your account, and you gave us your righteousness and put it on our account. Lord, that is the act of purifying your children. Lord, thank you for what you've already done. But Lord, there's a continuous action as well. Lord, as human beings with still a flesh nature, well, we still struggle with sin. Well, we still stain what should be pure. Lord, convict us of our sins. Lord, help us to surrender anew to you. 
allowing you to do your great and mighty perfecting work by forgiving us and cleansing us and filling us anew. May we be found faithful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.